This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Ben Lerner read his story Café Lou, which appeared in the September 5th, 2022 issue of the magazine. Lerner is the author of the novels Leaving the Atocha Station, 1004, and The Topeka School, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2020. He was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2015. Now here's Ben Lerner. Café Lou. When I became a father, I began to worry not only that I would die and not be able to care for my daughter, but that I would die in an embarrassing way, that my death would be an abiding embarrassment for Astra, that in some future world, assuming there is a future, she will be on a date with someone hard as that is for me to imagine, and her date will ask, what does your father do? And she will say, he died when I was little, and her date will respond, I'm sorry, hesitate, and then ask in a bid for intimacy how I died. And Astra will feel ashamed, will look down into her blue wine, there will be blue wine in the future, and say, he had an aneurysm on the toilet, which is one of the ways I often fear that I might die. I'm sure she'd withhold the toilet part, at least on a first date, but that would just make it worse, amplify the shame. If I were to die on the toilet tomorrow, I assume Inma wouldn't share many specifics with Astra, who, like most three-year-olds, finds everything relating to the potty fascinating and hilarious, but as Astra grew older, she would want to know more about the circumstances of my death, at which point Inma would have to either lie or divulge the details, withholding, divulging, all these terms sound scatological. Ema would, I'm confident, eventually tell Astra the truth. In fact, I can imagine a version of the conversation that's tender, sweet. Ema finally tells Astra it happened on the toilet, let's say while reading on the toilet. There is an awkward moment of silence, then they both start laughing, then they both start crying, embracing each other, laughing and crying, remembering me as a well-meaning fool who projected or tried to project some seriousness as a poet, as a person, but who in fact met an appropriately ridiculous end silly dada, as Astra always says. Maybe it wouldn't be that bad for Astra. To be able to laugh at your father is a kind of gift, perhaps the biggest gift a father can give, but I worried that if I died on the toilet or in some other ignominious way when Astra was still very young and Astra had little or no conscious memory of me, then I would, in her mind, be totally identified with the manner of my demise my entire life, at least for her, would contract to the punchline of my death. At every point of his life, a man who dies at 35 will have been a man who dies at 35. At every point of his life, a man who dies on the toilet will have been a man who is going to die on the toilet. His poems will be the poems of a man who died on the toilet. His loves, his causes, his crises, the loves and causes and crises of the man destined to leave the world on the toilet. And a man who chokes to death at 40 on a piece of steak at Café Lou will have been at every point that man. And while choking to death isn't as bad as dying on the toilet, there is still something disgraceful about it, especially if you're a little fat as I am, if you eat too fast and talk too much as I do, so that your death is the death of a slob. A word I once, I was nine or ten, heard an elegant aunt of mine use to describe me when she thought I was out of earshot, catalyzing a full-bodied experience of shame that I can feel the echo of now. Slob, less a word you pronounce than a sonic object you disgorge. 
and to die by choking, especially choking on animal flesh, is linked to the toilet, is involved with digestion and elimination, which is part of the humor and power of the scene in Boonwell's The Phantom of Liberty, where the guests at a dinner party, if that's what it's called, are seated around a table on toilets and have to discreetly excuse themselves to the dining room to eat as quickly as possible in privacy. When I began to choke, when, maybe because I'd been laughing at something Aaron had said or because I'd taken too large a bite or because I'd failed to chew my food sufficiently, which is more likely to happen when you've been drinking, my epiglottis, the flap of cartilage that covers the opening of the trachea when you swallow, failed to close in time and the piece of steak lodged there, blocking all airflow to my lungs, I felt tremendous shame. Shame spread through me as I sat, startled, entirely unable to breathe, the steak having formed a perfect seal as if it had been precisely measured to stop my windpipe, a word that has always troubled me that makes it sound as if we were mere instruments, chimes. While Aaron went on talking, I glanced around the packed restaurant to see if anybody else knew my secret. At one table, an older couple were reading their menus by the light of their phones. At another, a woman with bare shoulders was holding a hand out toward her companion, displaying a ring. Maybe I could see a diamond sparkle above the candle. As if to buy time, I took a small sip of my wine. My water glass was empty, but there was nowhere for the wine to go. I let it trickle into my napkin, which I returned to my lap. All the while, I was trying to conceal my condition, which was insane, as I should have been alerting Aaron immediately to my choking, but I had the confused if intense sense that if I didn't acknowledge the reality of my choking, I'd be fine. And while I was terrified of my shameful secret being discovered, divulged, disgorged, I did not yet register the fear of dying, although I sensed the fear was coming. I sensed a deep ancestral panic was taking form, but it wasn't inside me, it was not yet mine. I pictured, while I sat staring at Aaron without hearing him, as if my ears and not my throat were obstructed, the panic gathering itself in Union Square on the southeast corner of Union Square, a violently rotating column of air collecting and scattering leaves and trash now traveling toward me through the spring night. Maybe that's what you're seeing whenever you see a little swirling updraft of debris in the city. Someone's panic taking shape, someone's death setting out to find their body. It was at this point, I'm not sure how many seconds had passed, that I began to write this in my head, by which I mean I started to narrate my choking to myself as if transforming it into a story would keep me connected to a future in which I might tell it, as if I were a kind of Scheherazade to my own choking, and I started to audition different analogies for that horribly decisive moment when the stake stopped my windpipe, analogies that would emphasize how it felt less like an accident had occurred than like an operation had been successful successfully performed, a shuttle docking at a space station, a bullet sliding into a chamber, a prophecy being fulfilled. All the analogies were wrong, but that was good. That meant I could go on auditioning them, postponing my death, keeping the tornado of fear from finding the restaurant, my table. Take all the time you need, a voice said in my head. Mrs. Sackett's voice, my first grade teacher at Randolph Elementary, she said it each time she gave us a writing prompt. 
I'd involuntarily summon Mrs. Sackett because she was rumored to have once saved a child who was choking on a piece of hard candy by stabbing him in the throat with a pencil, performing an emergency tracheotomy which had always remained for me a vividly a variously imagined primal scene in which the writing implement is both an instrument of violence and of care, and the teacher both an assailant and a savior. There were also no doubt complex sexual fantasies and fears embedded in this story. I'd read that you're everyone in your dreams, and I'd always imagined myself as both the teacher and the child in this dreamlike scene, my consciousness distributed across the bodies, but also the objects, the pencil, the candy lodged in the child's throat. It was hard to explain. I was going to need a lot of time to tease out the implications, but miraculously, given that I couldn't breathe, I could take all the time I needed. Part of me was at my table in Café Lou turning pale, staring unseeingly and unhearingly at Aaron, but part of me rose from my desk and walked to the pencil sharpener attached to the wall, and that part of me could smell the cedar shavings as I turned the little crank, could hear the birds in the walnut tree beside the half-open window. I walked back to my desk and sat down and carefully wrote my name in my recently acquired cursive, blowing to disperse the trace amounts of graphite, but when I looked up to check the date, Mrs. Sackett always wrote it on the chalkboard, I saw Aaron's face, saw that Aaron had asked me a question, and now, for the first time, I tried to speak. Spinoza wrote that the Aleph, the first and silent letter of the Hebrew alphabet, is the sound of the opening of the throat as if to speak and not speaking. If the last letter of the alphabet were also silent, it should be assigned to the non-sound I made when I tried to speak, to make any noise at all in response to whatever it was that Aaron had asked. Whatever the densest, purest form of silence is, the sound of closing the throat, the black hole of silence that sucks everything you've ever said or might have said into it, that was the non-sound I made when no air escaped through my windpipe, and I no longer felt that I could keep my choking secret, no longer felt that I had time, and that was when the panic entered the restaurant. It wasn't a tornado now, it was spilling across the floor like flame on oil, and touched me. When I became a father, I secretly gave myself permission to kill myself if anything ever happened to my daughter, and I even selected a spot. Selected isn't the word. The spot simply started appearing in my mind, near the Brooklyn side of the Manhattan Bridge, where I would jump if something did happen, a place to which I could rush, staying ahead of the pain. I'd hail a cab and run onto the bridge and scale the ineffectual chain-link fence and leap and lose consciousness when I hit the dark water. I would like to think I would not actually kill myself, that I wouldn't do that to Inma, to my family and friends, but it was a definite and comforting image, this particular spot on the bridge. It comforted me to picture it when I couldn't sleep and was ruminating about SIDS or fascists or rising seas. It comforted me during the night we spent in the ER because Astra was wheezing, or more recently, when she fell down the stairs in our building and was fine, but the whole time she was falling, head over heels, eerily silent, except for the sound of her body hitting each successive step, I was thinking about jumping. When I tried to speak and could not, 
This was half a minute into my choking. The image of the water, the moving image, the live stream of that particular patch of black water I'd selected or that had selected me appeared in my mind and I was internally commanded as if the father in Kafka's The Judgment had screamed, I condemn you to death by drowning, except I was both the father and the son in this version, to flee the restaurant and destroy myself so as to avoid choking to death in front of a hundred people at Café Lou. How much worse it would be for Astra to have a father who killed himself for no apparent reason than one who died by accident, however embarrassing. But as adrenaline flooded my body, I no longer felt compelled to keep my secret quietly at the table. Instead, I felt compelled to get out of the restaurant as quickly as possible, to die on my own terms, away from the gaze of others. Obviously, I would not have time to travel the two or three miles to my spot on the bridge, nor would I be able to reach the Hudson, but I could jump in front of a bus, or, if there weren't any buses, I could at least expire in the dark, unobserved, as opposed to flailing around and turning purple in Café Lou, where somebody might film my death throes on their phone. This impulse to flight, I would later learn, is common and deadly for people who are choking. And now I stood, I found myself standing, looking across the packed dining room to the door, which seemed to have receded. Aaron thought that I'd stood to greet someone, and so he also rose from his chair, turning around to see who had arrived, then turning back to me in confusion. For the first time, he now realized that something was wrong, and he asked me if I was okay. Later, he told me that, as I brought my hands to my throat to make the universal sign, I had a slight apologetic smile. He asked me, are you choking? I had always been fascinated and slightly disturbed by the question, are you choking? The question you were told to ask before rendering assistance. There is something funny or cruel about it, because nothing seems to be in less need of verbal clarification than the fact that somebody is incapable of drawing breath. It's like asking somebody if they're on fire. No, why do you ask? Although I understood there must be various conditions that mimic choking in which you don't want somebody doing abdominal thrusts that might break your ribs and also that the question functions as a request for consent to intervene. Nevertheless, the question, long before Aaron asked it of me that night in Café Lou, haunted me because, paradoxically, the only true way to answer in the affirmative is to be incapable of answering at all. You are taught that if a person who is ostensibly choking says yes, they are not really choking. You are supposed to stay with them, monitor them until they swallow or cough or otherwise expel the obstruction. Logicians talk about the liar paradox. If you say, I am lying, and the statement is true, it's false, but if it's false, it's true. This is the choker paradox in which the condition of assent is the incapacity to assent. A yes is a no. Since so much of language is used to obscure the brute reality of bodies and their processes to cover the real with the symbolic, this scene where the good Samaritan asks the choking person if they're choking became in my mind a ritual acknowledgement of the gap between these two things, the gap but also the interdependence between physical life, respiring and perspiring and chewing and shitting and the social world of speech, a division unreliably enforced by a leaf-shaped flap of cartilage. This must be why, ever since Mr. Kessler taught us the steps for assisting a conscious choking adult in our eighth grade health class and made us rehearse them with one another, 
without actually performing the thrusts, which he explained were quite dangerous, leaving us with the sense that we should never actually do what he was supposedly preparing us to do unless we were trying to inflict harm on an enemy. Mr. Kessler was also the wrestling coach, so that the entire scene became a fraught and confusing mashup of sex, assume the position behind your partner, and violence and humiliation that had nothing to do with saving anybody. I have always thought there was sadism haunting the question, are you choking? The one who still draws breath and can form it into speech demands from the person who is choking a response they cannot give. In my mind, it also perversely links the emergency protocols for choking with breath play in which, aside from whatever the physiology of asphyxiation and orgasm might be, there is the erotic drama of being reduced to mere body and then restored to speech. Regardless, choking is a uniquely human drama, a definitional drama for the homoloquens, a drama at the heart of the human, or rather, at the larynx, the voice box, which, as we evolved, moved lower and lower, enabling us to generate a long column of vibrating air we can shape into meaning with our mouth parts, shaped air that might in turn build and shape a world. But this evolutionary speech advantage required that the space in our bodies for breathing and swallowing be shared. The formal capacity for speech comes with the risk of choking to death, something only humans frequently do. Choking in scenes of instruction had always been linked in my mind, not only because of Sackett and Kessler, but also because I associated the ritual posing of a question that can't be answered, the addressing of speech to the helpless non-speaker, with the relation between infant, in, not, font, speaking, and parent, the parent who talks to the baby as if she might respond, the very first language lessons, often starting in utero, hello, little Astra, can you hear me? She wasn't yet named Astra when we attended, a little more than three years before I choked on my steak, the infant CPR and safety class Inma's OBGYN recommended for all new parents. We found ourselves one February night around a table at NYU Langone with three other couples and one unaccompanied pregnant woman while the instructor, a nurse in light blue scrubs, circled us with a cart on which were stacked infant CPR mannequins, asking each couple to take one. Some of the mannequins were brown and some of them were white, and I assumed that the nurse, a white woman, was asking couples to choose their mannequin instead of simply distributing them so that people could select the one whose skin color they believed most closely approximated their future offsprings, although nothing about the plastic tonalities looked human. The man and woman who formed the first couple the cart reached were black. They selected a brown mannequin. The next couple consisted of two white women, and they selected a white baby. When it was our turn to choose from the nightmarish cart, I leaned back a little to make it clear to Inma that she should decide. She hesitated, and I assumed she was imagining the future pigmentation of our daughter. Would she more closely resemble Inma's coloration or mine? And was Inma's skin color ultimately closer to the brown plastic or the white? It was as if all the future complexity of our interracial family were enfolded in the selection of the dummy, although this might have been only in my mind. Inma chose a brown one. The woman without a partner, I thought she was white but I wasn't sure, chose a brown baby too and set it down harder than she meant to. The plastic head hit the table with a crack. Once we all had our babies, the nurse sat and began to read from a binder. We were to be congratulated for taking the time to acquire these life-saving techniques. 
I'd already decided I'd be unable to assimilate any of the information in real time and would have to catch up later with YouTube tutorials. And, as I expected, everything unfolded for me once the actual practicing started in a disordered, disorienting whirl. Lay the infant face down across the arm. You don't have to say, are you choking, to an infant, but you can. Deliver five sharp blows with your palm between the shoulder blades. But how hard, someone asked. Harder than you'd think, the nurse said. Turn your infant over. Place two fingers in the center of the doll's chest, quickly compressed to at least a third of its depth, approximately an inch and a half. But how fast, someone asked. A rate of around a hundred times a minute, she said. Think of the song, Stayin' Alive. I thought the nurse had made a tasteless joke, but she was serious, repeating, think of the tempo of Stayin' Alive, which I would later learn is known as the CPR anthem. I wasn't sure I knew how to think of a tempo, if I could be confident I hadn't sped it up or slowed it down, but now the song became a mocking soundtrack in my mind. Tilt the baby's head back to open the airway, cover both the child's mouth and nose with your own mouth and whisper staying alive directly into the infant's brain, inspirit the dummy its windpipe, then beseech it to stay. Do not leave me, if you do I'll jump off the Manhattan Bridge, I have a place in mind. The mannequin tasted like rubbing alcohol. I remember pushing it over to Ema as if it were a strangely shaped bong from which I'd just taken a dizzying hit. But Ema pushed it back. I'd read that the face of the adult CPR dummy, at least originally, was modeled on the death mask of a teenage girl found floating in the Seine in the 19th century, which made her, in the disturbing formulation I encountered, the most kissed girl in the world. I hoped the infant dummies had no particular human source. Deliver two breaths, the nurse was saying. Each ventilation should last a second. I looked at the couple across the table. They were doing back blows again, so I started doing back blows. The nurse was saying something about the compression to ventilation ratio when the woman who didn't have a partner slammed her hands on the table and said, I killed my baby. My fucking baby is dead, okay? I am the worst. I am the worst mother who ever lived. In the ensuing silence, I tried to identify her accent. Greek? Israeli? Everyone was staring at the woman or trying not to. She was smiling. Or everyone was staring or trying not to stare at the plastic baby she had failed. And now she was crying, but still holding the smile. For a long moment, nobody knew what to do. Then Inma and one of the other women pushed back their chairs and went to her as quickly as their pregnant bellies would allow, offering comfort, support, encouragement. The worst mother who ever lived became one of our most enduring jokes, refrains. We were always, especially when Astra was an infant, calling each other the worst mother who ever lived. I could also be that mother. We claimed that there were only two kinds of mothers, the good enough mother and the worst mother who ever lived. If I forgot to buy diapers and I had to go back out, I was the worst mother who ever lived. If Inma nicked Astra while cutting her nails, she was the worst mother who ever lived. It was a useful joke. It helped lighten Ema's tendency towards self-recrimination. It short-circuited the guilt mechanism, laid it bare, and it was good for her to call me a mother, for the impossibly punishing category of mother to be spread around the apartment so that it lost some of its force, so the mother in her head would stop saying, I condemn you to death by drowning, or whatever Ema's equivalent of that condemnation was. 
I will never forget that moment of transformation when the sanitized and anxious space of the conference room suddenly became human, how we all scooted our chairs a little closer to the woman, how we all started laughing and joking and talking about how scary and weird this parenting thing was, would be, how the couple forms dissolved into something larger, however briefly, even the nurse joining us, becoming one of us, showing us pictures of her kids on her phone. This is the troublemaker. Here's one from Halloween before we all returned to our places around the table and the class resumed, infinitely more collaborative now, although I still couldn't keep the emergency protocols straight, couldn't learn anything, except the necessity of repeatedly sweeping your home for choking hazards, as we discussed during the review period, when we'd set our dolls aside. Beware of marbles and Legos your older kids might have left around. Beware of screws or washers that might have fallen from your ready-to-assemble furniture. A cashew or a piece of gum a grown-up might inadvertently have let fall to the carpet where your child will crawl. And, perhaps most important, you must always remember to properly cut your child's food, to cut round foods like hot dogs and grapes lengthwise. The nurse took turns looking us in the eye. You don't know how many lives would be saved if parents would cut their kids' hot dogs lengthwise into strips, then cut them again, and so on. And in addition to our joke and the memory of the camaraderie the worst mother enabled, that was what I retained from our child safety and CPR class. That was what I took home. That was what I recalled a year and a half later when Astra began to eat solid food, when we were no longer pureeing what we fed her and or mixing it with breast milk, and when she would sit in her high chair banging her sippy cup on the tray, demanding uvas, uvas, her favorite food, and according to Inma, her first word, although I think Astra was attempting her mother's name. When I was a child, somebody gave me a paperweight that contained within it an impossibly detailed forest scene. And when I think of the grapes, of how all the complexity of our family became enfolded in the grapes, I imagine that if I had lifted one of those grapes up to the light and rotated it around, I would have perceived within it all of our family histories depicted in miniature, not just me and Inma in our own high chairs at the dawn of the 80s, our parents feeding us, but our own parents being fed in the 40s and 50s, all the way back to our respective old worlds, Kiev and San Juan, Kasha or Plantains, however mouths were sated and policed according to family and cultural custom. And if I kept rotating the grape, I'd also see Mrs. Sackett wielding her pencil of life and Mr. Kessler telling us not to practice our thrusts, all of it as intricately rendered as the shield of Achilles or Zeuxis grapes, which were so perfectly represented in his paintings that birds tried to eat them, birds which sing from their syrinx, not their larynx, and cannot, to my knowledge, choke to death, although some can mimic human speech. When I was in charge of preparing Astra's food, I chopped everything so finely I admit I might as well have blended it or hit it with a hammer which is not what I was supposed to be doing. I was supposed to be giving her an experience of texture, as Inma kept pointing out. She has to learn what she likes. She has to learn to use her teeth. And since Inma's mother was over many times a week, she often witnessed Inma remarking that I'd inadvertently liquefied Astra's food. And of course, Inma's mom silently sided with Inma forming a triangle. I was the neurotic cracker with no experience caring for children who was trying to micromanage the steamed carrots, the hot dogs, which thankfully Astra didn't really like, and the grapes. 
Because Inma's mom had taught kindergarten, she'd recently retired, I'd hoped she might share the intensity of my concern about Astra choking. Surely there had been trainings about these things. But although both Inma and her mother were incredibly conscientious caretakers in general, so graceful and competent with Astra that I felt bumbling in comparison, and although they watched her closely when she ate, the fear of her choking quickly became my thing, the worry I carried that carried all of my other worries. I would pulverize the food and they would not quite slice it properly, which is the way of polarization. When Inma's mom was sitting with Astra at the table, it was less that I watched over them than that my effort not to was palpable, and if Inma or her mom was cutting something for Astra, I perceived a slight exaggeration in their gestures, a trace of performativity that said, see how tiny these pieces are? Do we have your permission to feed her? It was a cliché, this tension around the child's eating, the triangulation, etc., but I was finding small, mortally uncut grapes in the purple plastic snack container Inma's mom took with Astra to the park, and large grapes on the high chair that were cut in half but never lengthwise. Anyway, they should be quartered, and then I'd confront Inma about it as if it were her fault, demanding she talk to her mom, and before we knew it, we would be having a spectacular fight, scaling up from the grapes to question of power, labor, value, the possibility of love, Astra crying when we yelled, or worse, taking it all in silently, blinking her large brown eyes. We'd had one such fight only a month or two before I choked. And it was only when I choked, while I was standing there choking at Café Lou, that I fully realized, although not in these words, that our polarization around the grapes issued from our conflicting but, in fact, equally magical beliefs about the effects of my voicing again and again, my fear of Astra choking. Ema would of course agree that the food should be cut up, but the intensity of my focus on this particular risk, the repetitive articulation of my concerns, reading statistics off my phone, last year alone, every child in America choked to death, showing with my thumb and index finger the tiny diameter of a child's windpipe, was, in Inma's mind, courting disaster. This was both because talking about it at all invited the evil in, and because too much confidence in risk management, the financialized worldview of the privileged, was a kind of hubris, the fantasy that you could have or quarter the constant threats that attended living. It was asking God or whatever cosmic force to cut you lengthwise down to size. Inma, then, did not speak her fears for fear that speaking them would make them happen, that speaking them would summon one of those little tornadoes of debris. She did not, while pregnant with Astra, ever acknowledge her terror of another late miscarriage, for instance, neither to me nor, I'm sure, to her mother, whereas I told my own mother constantly that the pregnancy wouldn't make it to term, that we were never going to have a child, not because I believed these things with certainty and not only because I was expressing what Freudians call signal anxiety about a prospective trauma, but because I thought, although I would have denied it, that voicing the worst-case scenarios made them at least a little less likely, a kind of negative prayer. If I survive, I thought as I stood in Café Lou, although not in these words, not in words at all, so thought isn't really right, I simply felt as I stood dying that if I lived to tell the tale of my choking, I would not tell it, couldn't tell it, because Inma would believe, or at least half believe, that I was responsible for what had happened. Yaves, I could hear her mom, who would believe it in full, saying that the stake was my comeuppance for all the worry I'd expressed. 
That was crazy, and yet it struck me as equally or perhaps even more crazy to think that my choking was entirely random, entirely unrelated to my obsessive worry about Astra's choking and the tension surrounding it. If I didn't accept the idea of mere coincidence, contingency, and I didn't accept that the universe was punishing me, what did I believe? I rejected what I thought of as Inma's Caribbean metaphysics and yet my substitute religion, the Jewish science of psychoanalysis, would suggest that I'd been unconsciously driven to choke because I felt unheard about choking driven to destroy myself over the grapes. And this would really mean that I was responsible for what had happened, that I had quite literally done it to myself, however unconsciously. Was there a weaker, more plausible version of the psychoanalytic account? Maybe I was more disposed to choke because of all the intensity around choking. Maybe I was eating faster or chewing less thoroughly. But this too sounded ridiculous. The idea that my throat was primed, that I was just waiting for the right wrong bite. Chance, fate, the version of fate the unconscious was, I couldn't accept any of these worldviews. I had no worldview. I'd had 40 years to develop one and failed. Again, these were less coherent ideas than waves of feeling issuing from an increasingly unoxygenated brain. But now, out of this metaphysical abyss, I was commanded, just as I'd been commanded at one point to flee the restaurant and destroy myself, never to tell the story of my choking. It felt as if some god or Kafkan father or wrestling coach were making me an offer. If you swear you will not recount your choking, will not turn it into a story, I will allow you to survive. I will break the seal. All of this will have been a warning to shut your mouth, you fucking slob, to stop tempting fate, to learn to withhold, to hold in the sense Ima often ascribed to that term, as when she asked me to hold her upset without trying to fix it or explain it or interpret it, or when I believe believed she wanted me to hold more of my anxiety without spreading it around in a plume of speech. And what was my problem exactly? Why couldn't I hold a feeling without having to express it? Why couldn't I stand to have a thought inside me without having to immediately spit it out, disgorge it, clear the passage? Early in my career as a choker, I believed I would narrate my way back to the world of the breathing, that language would save me, but now I swore desperately, yes, if I am allowed to live, I will tell no one what has happened to me, and starting with that silence, I will learn the way of silence. I will no longer manically ingest and express, will neither tempt fate nor attempt to evade it with talk, please. Aaron was behind me, his breath on my neck trying to figure out where to put his hands. Instead of my life flashing before my eyes, a series of odors were doing whatever the olfactory equivalent of flashing is, all of them intensified by the fact that I couldn't inhale. Childhood cut grass, Nothing is a cliché when you're dying. The sulfur of strike anywhere matches asphalt after rain, fresh paint in a room whose windows are open in the spring, movie theater popcorn, the sexual smell that is the vaginal smell of a woman who broke my heart in my late 20s, hyacinth, watermelon candy in the throat of Mrs. Sackett's student, my first cat, Felix, grilled peaches at my brother's in Seattle, 
Then, as Aaron placed his interlocking hands above my navel, they all started to coalesce around Astra, the odors, the slight soapy smell of Ima's breast milk, of the milk on Astra's infant breath, the milky smell of Astra's shit before she started eating solid foods, the smell of her vomit on the flight back from Ponce, the smell of the baby shampoo on the wisps of her hair mixing with the cherry blossoms when I walked her through the botanical gardens in the carrier. It was all Astra now, as Aaron performed his first ineffectual thrust, tears finally in my eyes, haloing all the tabletop candles, my little Aleph, little star, my asterisk, and even as my peripheral vision began to contract, and my ears started to ring, and I was begging my daughter to forgive me in my mind, I was surprised, and surprised that I was surprised, that in my last moments on earth as I was flooded with terror and love, I had the mental space to note how the world failed to conform to my expectations of it, that nobody around us in the restaurant seemed aware of what was happening. How was it possible that no waiter had appeared, that people around us were still drinking and laughing and eating and generating columns of vibrating air at their tables while Aaron did it again? How was it possible nobody was answering the phone? It was ringing in our kitchen on Jewel Street. Can someone get that? My mom was yelling. Can someone take a message, please? Because you were everyone at the tables, the dark splotches in my vision. You were the tables and the candles and cliches. That was Ben Lerner reading his story, Café Lou. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2012. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Andrea Alexis reads Waiting for Death in a Hotel by Italo Calvino, translated from the Italian by Martin McLaughlin. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.